Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back in the 1960s, when the baby boomers were just coming of age, they made sure that the world's attention was riveted on them, their youthful obsessions and dynamism. These boomers dictated the cultural pace, establishing the tenor of the times. Fast forward to today, as this same generation ages, our focus has shifted too. It's as if the spotlight has suddenly swung toward old age, reflecting our preoccupation with our leaders' advancing age and a growing nostalgia for the past. Once again, the boomers seem to be monopolizing the conversation, overshadowing other generations and clinging to power across all arenas. Whether we like it or not, this is our reality as a nation. For those boomers who cling to power and influence, reluctant to go gentle into that good night, it's essential that we truly grasp the nature of aging, what it affects, what it doesn't, and how flexible the aging boomers can be in their relationships with friends, family, and country. The phrase 60 is the new 50 has become almost cliche, and many now claim that 70 is the new 60. But how true is this? Has the confluence of modern medicine, knowledge, and technology genuinely enhanced our ability to age with grace? Why do some 70 or 80-year-olds appear either so much more youthful or aged than their peers? And what about absolutes? Are there unchangeable benchmarks in the aging process that remain impervious to the advancement of modernity? How do these factors affect us all? Not only as individuals, but as citizens in a nation increasingly influenced by a gerontocracy. Joining me to dive into these questions and more is my guest, Dr. Roseanne Leipzig. Dr. Leipzig is a professor and vice chair emeritus for the Brookdale Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. She's the editor-in-chief of the monthly newsletter Focus on Healthy Aging and co-editor of the fourth edition of Geriatric Medicine. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Roseanne Leipzig here to talk about her latest work, Honest Aging, An Insider's Guide to the Second Half of Life. Roseanne Leipzig, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. Well, it is a delight to have you here. Our focus on aging these days from both a societal point of view and a medical point of view as well, to what extent is this because there are new things and new information about aging, or is it simply because the boomers are aging and that becomes the center of the universe as that usually does with them. Well, as a boomer, I am too. So that's, um, I think the reason that it's coming to our attention is that we now have more people living into old age than ever before in history. And if you take, if you go forward, like to 2034, the estimates are that there will be as many people in the United States over 65 as under 18, which is truly unprecedented. And if you think back to 1900, median life expectancy was 47. And now it's up at 78 or so. So we just have, I hate to use the word tsunami, <laughs> But it kind of is in terms of the numbers of older people and how unprepared we are as a society for these older people. Talk about the ways in which you think we are the most unprepared. Where do I begin? Um, <laughs> I think people think about aging in terms of financial preparedness. 
um, do I have enough money to live the rest of my life? But there are so many other parts to it. We just don't know what's going to happen to us as we get older. But many, when you ask in America, the percentage of people who want to age in their own homes, it's like 50, 60, 70%. It's huge, okay? So what do you need to live in your own home? You need a home that's safe, that takes into account all of the changes that occur as you get older, that should you need help has room for somebody. You need someone, and if you need somebody to be with you, how do you afford that? We really have made attention between being able to have help at home and giving those people who provide the help at home a living wage. So that's just one piece of what we're not at all prepared for. The other piece is that people don't prepare for what their life is gonna be like. You know, we have 20 to 40 years that people never had before. Kids are grown, you're out of your initial job most of the time, okay? Uh, what are you gonna do with this time? And I've had people who, I'll tell you about one who came into my office, he was miserable and complaining, complaining, retired, dot, dot, dot. And I said to him, how long ago did you retire? And this was October. He said, September 1st. I was like, so you didn't know it was coming? <laughs> You've got to think about what are the things you want to be doing when you no longer have what you had before filling up your day. Of course, part of that is because a lot of people don't want to think about it because the easiest solution to deal with aging is really denial. Absolutely. We have a lot of ostriches in this world who put their heads in the sand. And, you know, that's actually part of why I wrote this book was so that people would have an idea of what to expect, that it's not all downhill, which is how people in general think about aging that there are a lot of positives that occur with aging, particularly in how you deal with your world. You know, you've had 70, 80 years to figure out ways to solve problems, to make things better. You know, you're less likely to get super angry for long periods of time. You know, I say, I, I don't do road rage like I used to, you know, <laughs> and I'm 72 now. Um, so I think it's really important that we get people to understand that there are things to look forward to. It's not just the end of the line. How much of our view of aging today, do you think, is, is shaped in part by the fact that we are surrounded by a gerontocracy in, in politics and in business in so many aspects of life today? So I have trouble with the term gerontocracy. Um, because it sounds as if you have old people, at least to me, as if you have old people who are good, not good for much. And I saw a magazine that I get weekly uh, yesterday, and the front cover was Joe Biden, uh, Diane Feinstein, and Mitch McConnell, uh, two of them in rocking chairs with a nurse putting an IV in, you know. And I thought, you know, this is not every older person, and it's not even everybody in that picture. Um, I think we need to recognize that older, there is more, um, the term we use is heterogeneity, differences 
among 80-year-olds and 85-year-olds than there are among any other age group. Um, and some people are frail and not able to keep up. Some people are fit and, you know, they have the usual things that come with aging, but it doesn't impair their ability to do what they've been able to do before. Why is there, for, from a medical perspective, talk a little bit about why there is such a profound difference, that, that you can see 70 and 80-year-olds that are active and fit, as, as you say, and some that are fragile and not doing very well. I mean, there is this huge difference, and it, it conf it's confusing to people, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of it is that aging begins at birth, and a lot of the things that have gone into your life will determine how you are in old age. We talk about chronologic age, but there's also biologic age. And biologic age is really taking into account all of those things that you have gone through in your life that cause you to be more frail, closer to death, more likely to have bad outcomes. So I think just as an example, People who have exercised throughout their life in general are more fit when they're older. People who have taken care of their diet, people who have had luck of the draw with genetics, okay? Education helps. Um, how much food you had when you were a child makes a difference. So I think we need to recognize that it's not just a problem of old age. Um, it's something that has been working its way throughout your entire life. In many ways, it's the, the ch proverbial chickens coming home to roost and the realization, I suppose, at some point that you, you get to a certain stage and you really can't change anything. You can't do anything about it. Well, you know, I wouldn't say you can't do anything about it, okay? I think there are always things, not always, almost always things that can be done to improve the quality of your life maybe not the quantity. And I think that's where um, we fall down on the job because a lot of people say, well, what do you expect, you're 80, you know? And I've heard doctors say that. I've had patients come to me because their doctors have said that. Um, and I think we need to realize that if we know what's coming, if we recognize what's coming, we can do things that will allow us to have an enjoyable, engaged, and meaningful old age, which to me is the goal. Talk about the, the difference between chronological age and, and this sense of, of denial that sometimes goes along with it. And it's really only at a certain point that suddenly something biologically happens that becomes the marker by which you can no longer deny. I think that's true. I think we live in an ageist society. OK, nobody wants to get older right. um, after their 18th or 21st birthday. And I think one of the pieces here is the negative perception of aging. And there's actually a clinical psychologist at Yale um, who has Be Becca Levy, who has done an awful lot of work showing that how you view aging influences how long you live and how well you live. You, you're prejudiced against your future self and you take that with you into old age. So if you look at it as a negative, 
of course you're going to want to deny that it's going to happen to you. But but isn't that a potentially good thing? That that by denying it, by being active, by refusing to give in to the realities of aging, that in many ways you, you're being positive about it as opposed to just leaning into what you're told comes at a certain biological age. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. What I'm talking about is more the people who um, don't let themselves recognize that there are changes that occur. And just as an example, I have a friend whose dad was a Marine, and he went back to the gym in his 70s. And he was ready to quit after three or four days because he was so far from where he had been. And he knew he would never get there. And, you know, we talked about it. And I said, you know, the Boston Marathon has classes of, you know, 20-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And they're winners in both classes. And those winners are in the best shape possible. And, but, you know, there's a few hours difference in their time. You can get to a better place than where you are right now. You know, it's just recognizing um, what's real and what you might be able to get to. The other side of that is that oftentimes something biological happens, a disease, a a fall, an accident, something happens Mm -hmm. that begins a downward spiral, that that somehow it's hard— just just as you're talking about the positive side, that it's hard to recover once you start spiraling down. Talk about that. Yep. Well, I think one of the things that happens is there's both a psychological and a physiologic response. So once, you know, everybody talks about the fall, that's the start, the hip fracture, that's the start of the end. And part of that is that when these things happen, people to some extent give up a bit. They don't do what they need to do. And we in healthcare don't force them to do what they need to do to lose the least amount of function possible. So if you lay in a bed, if anybody lays in a bed for a week, they're gonna lose an amazing amount of muscle mass, okay? Their blood pressure when they stand up is gonna go down. There are things that happen to you. And so it's really important that when these things happen, people immediately start doing the things that will keep the damage at a minimum. Does that make sense? It does. Of course, the other part of that is the psychological aspect and and really coming to grips with, with the reality of that and not, as you said before, giving up. Right. The psychological is key. Um, And it's really interesting. This is important for loved ones as well, you know, and you don't want to be a nag, you know, Um, but you want to work with the person that you love to get them to realize that, you know, the, the goal is to get them back to being able to do what they like to do and reminding them what matters to them. What's the purpose and what can we do to get you back there? Talk about the genetics, because that really does seem to be the holy grail in all of this? I'm not sure we know how much genetics influence. Um, it's certainly, there's, an, there's a genetic influence to longevity. You know, centenarians tend to have centenarian children. Um, you know, that's kind of a, uh, 
not totally true, but it's it's more true than it is for other people. Um, but in terms, I, I don't think of it as a horse is out of the barn because of the genetics you have. Sometimes we get dealt a bad deal, okay? Um, and there's not much you can do about that. But most of what is important in having um, a good old age is not genetics. One of the things that enters into the equation, and, and you see it with so many people that, that even are just getting to that age, is, is an, an immense amount of fear. And one yes. wonders what that fear contributes to the process, either positively or negatively. I think fear oftentimes is a negative. Um, and it comes a lot of the time from having seen somebody who's gone something through something that you don't want to go through. And it's fear of the unknown. I don't think it's fear of death, okay? Most people, when they're older, are not as afraid of death as the, what's going to happen to their quality of life. Are they going to be able to be independent? Are they going to be a burden to people? So I think that it's less... Um, it's less that concern and more um, that, again, they haven't thought about it for themselves and they've only seen it in someone else. As you get older, there's going to be more and more things that are uncertain. There's no question about that. Um, and much more so than when you were younger. I mean, there's uncertainty then too. But when you're older, there's more of it. That being said, I think we don't recognize what good shape most older people are in. Um, 85, there, there's studies of people who are 85 and older that ask them, what do they consider their health to be, okay? Um, and we use this a lot in medicine, we use it in research, asking the person to say, you know, is your health poor? Is it fair? Is it good? Excellent, you know? And 70% of people 85 and older say it's good or excellent. Now, that's a shock. And what we found is what people say, it tends to be true. If they say their health is poor, then it probably is. You know, only about a quarter of people who are 85 and older are frail. Only about a quarter have dementia. 15% are living in nursing homes. I mean, people are doing much better than what we uh, tend to think the common lore about aging, and and why is that? We and and maybe it's just because of what's in the popular culture and what gets talked about. But there is a, a sense that that people that are of that age worry more about being frail or are frail, or we we constantly hear about Alzheimer's and dementia. I mean, these things are so much a part of the the national conversation that they seem to be a much bigger problem than than you indicate that they are. I think that's true. And I think that's part of the national conversation. I think we don't recognize that we see a lot of people who are doing really well when they're older, um, we've had a lot of comedians getting close to 100, okay, still performing. Um, it's not just, you know, um, something that you, you have to comment on. Um, I, I think we have the wrong idea. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, none of us are going to get out of this alive. There's no question. <laughs> but and a lot of us are going to have a point where things are not as good. 
But I think if we know what to expect and are proactive and take some control, that will be later than people tend to think it's going to be. Right. But of course, as, as we've talked about, acknowledging it, being proactive, trying to take control, acknowledges for a lot of people the, the prospect of aging in ways that they're really not prepared to acknowledge it. Right. Right. And I think, though, we need a total reframing of that. And that's a societal issue. You know, it's not just uh, an individual or a family's issue. We're seeing it now to get back to the, the gerontocracy issue. We're seeing it now within the political framework where many of these people that are older and, and, and politics aside, issues aside, all of that, there, there is a clear prejudice that is going on against people that are certainly in their 80s that are still active in many cases. I think you're right on that. And I think there are two sides to that. I think, as you were talking about at the beginning of the program, there is a time for all of us to say it's time for somebody else to be doing this. It's time for me to step down. And certainly when you're starting to show evidence that you're not the person you were before and you're not going to be able to do the job you were able to do before. People should on their own recognize that and step down, or we should have a law that says you need to be, you know, fit to this level to hold office since we're talking about politics. Um, so I agree with that. You, as I said, you're much more likely to have things happen. But, you know, this is usually when we're talking about Biden in particular, okay, um, and his running again, how will he be between ages 82 and 86? And it's really hard to say. I'm not his doctor. I can't say for sure. But, you know, he seems to be in pretty good shape. Yes, he's walking more slowly. Yes, he fell. You know, 30, 35% of people who are 65 or older fall every year. Bruce Springsteen fell, okay? <laughs> so I think we, if we're interested in the job they're going to do, we need to look at that um, and have a national conversation about, is there a point at which somebody should no longer be holding office and should we be looking for that. The other part of it is that, and I think everybody's experienced this with respect to family or friends or what have you, that somebody could be in their 80s, be relatively well, be very active, and all of a sudden something happens and they very quickly spiral down. And it happens almost overnight. Right. Those are usually big things. Those are usually somebody had a major stroke, for example. And I think the other thing which, you know, we don't talk about a lot is uh, is cancer. Mm -hmm. And when people have cancer and have to undergo treatment for cancer, you can see somebody who is doing very well suddenly doing poorly because of the treatment they're getting. So I think these things happen at all ages. Again, the older you are, the more likely it is that this is going to happen. And that is the problem with, with a lot of these treatments for whatever it might be that it does 
the treatment has its own side effects and, and, and weakens the person and they, they tend to cascade downwards. Absolutely. And there's an awful lot of discussion in medicine right now about how do we help people think through the benefits and the risks of these things that we are suggesting to them. You know, if you're going to, if you have a year left to live and you're going to spend 11 months of it recovering from the treatment, is that what you want? With the hope that you will get a couple more years at the end of that. And these are hard conversations. And I think doctors are just learning how to have these conversations. Is it your sense that this focus on aging today, and there is more focus on it, partly for political reasons, as we've talked about, partly because the boomers are aging and and they're such a large part of the population. Is this national conversation on aging going to ultimately be positive in terms of, of how we prepare for it? Or is it only going to feed all the prejudice and all the concern and all the negativity that goes along with talk about aging? I think it could go either way. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I'm worried about it. Um, because I think pointing it out in people who aren't having any problems at this point in time is is a prejudice, you know? Um, and I think... We need a national conversation and almost a national plan. We do need a national plan, okay? I mean, it's not just this sort of thing. It's saying, so New York is doing some of this and many other cities are as well, but it's saying, how do we make the city more livable for older people? How do we make it less likely that they fall? How do we make it more likely that they'll use public transportation? And some of the countries in Europe have started doing this very successfully. You know, they have national health and they use some of that money to do this. We have to decide if that's a priority for our country. And if so, it's getting to the point where it may be too late fairly soon. We really need to get this going. The the irony is that as we have more and more people in, in these age groups in positions of power, I would argue that there's probably greater reluctance to do it, greater reluctance to have this conversation because it accentuates their own age. I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. I think the people who probably are best are the ones who have parents who are going through this. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Roseanne Leipzig, her book is Honest Aging, an insider's guide to the second half of life. Roseanne, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you.